This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to the third episode in season two from the Old Brewery, a podcast brought to you from the School of Language, Literature, Music and Visual Culture at the University of Aberdeen, aimed to highlight the work of students and staff here at the school. My name is Ian Gross, a PhD research student in creative writing, and I'm talking today with visual artist Brian Keeley. Brian's in the third year of his PhD um, with research focusing on portrayals of heart transplantation and of people who are heart transplant recipients in contemporary art and visual culture. His research is practice-based, drawing on his own experience as a visual artist and as a heart transplant recipient. And his thesis argues that heart transplantation has a cultural legacy which is often based on superstition and fascination, despite it being a standard procedure to treat end-stage heart failure for more than half a century. Film and novels still overwhelmingly, excuse me, overwhelmingly depict the subject in fantastical or implausible way, ways through science fiction, horror or biosentimentality. Contemporary visual art and related academic research typically colonises the subject and is primarily concerned with philosophical notions of altered corporeality. This denies the traumatic reality of lived experience, Brian argues, in favour of non-experiential curiosity, propagated by those who do not have lived experience. Brian's research proposes that such stereotypes and superstitious attitudes to heart transplantation are outdated and should be challenged. So, hello, Brian. Hello, Ian. Thank Hi. you for uh, inviting me. That's all right. It's good to have you on. Um, you've had quite a journey, yeah. and uh, I was looking at your website where there's a, a very moving account of your, your heart attack and the transplantation and the beginnings of recovery. Uh, but I know before that you lived in Germany working as a video editor and a, 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 an English language teacher, and that you also taught art and design at secondary school. Uh, here in Aberdeen. So it just seems to me that the that the heart attack and the eventual transplant uh, was 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 a pivotal experience for you, would you say, in focusing on your uh, on your art practice? Yes, um because I had originally been to art school many years ago, and um, although I'd never really been a practicing artist as such, I'd always worked in broadly creative mm-hmm. areas. so, when I, bag, when I began to um, recover from my illness and the subsequent heart transplant, I guess I began to reflect on the significance of those events and and I wanted to start to do creative things and and it seemed kind of natural for me to um, to reflect on the experiences that that I was having and living through at the time and um, and, and still uh, and still um, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I suppose like most people, I'd never really thought too much about my heart or how it works or anything like that. And um, so when it happened to me, the heart attack, it was completely unexpected. And, you know, and suddenly finding myself eventually having spent spending 110 days in intensive care mm. on pretty much full life support, um, that in itself was a, a pivotal life turning point and um of course, yeah. so it was, it was yeah it was a completely unknown and terrifying world uh, to be honest and uh you know so but but eventually i was um put on the uh, uh urgent 
transplant list when you know when palliative care was was introduced uh, and and so um you know so, so two weeks after that um the you know I had a transplant and that began the 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 long road to recovery uh, which is really never ending i suppose with all transplant recipients it's a it's a completely life changing event um and so you know when, when yeah so when i started to um to to recover the one of the things i had was i also had a stroke and so my eyes and my coordination was poor for a long time and i couldn't i couldn't walk or anything also because you know i'd been lying on my back for three and a half months and lost like 30 percent of my body weight or something like that so i, I wanted to learn to draw and paint mm-hmm. um uh and you know because it was just i wanted to try and get back to some sense of um physical yeah um ability again um so and so that, you know yeah sorry i was just gonna say so that's where it started for you that in that process of recovery from that horrendous you know this experience the picking up um some paper and some pencils and just starting to draw again absolutely yeah and uh, and it was something which um you know that i, I had never really I, i'd always taken for granted those those things like mm. you know like walking drawing um you know uh seeing properly uh and you know I, so it was quite a struggle to then try and re- regain some of those mm-hmm. faculties um and so so those were the things that took all of my energy at the time and you know although beforehand i'd been you know uh, involved in the all the sort of tedious distractions of life like working <laughs> earning a living and so on um those seemed less important and i wanted to concentrate on doing more creative things as i said although at the time i didn't really know what direction that was going to take um but I did know it was going to focus on my experience, which, you know, which as you said, was a, you know, a, a pivotal um, life event. So that that uh, returning to just, you know, the simple, uh, seemingly simple, I'm sure it wasn't at the time for you, act of drawing and starting to turn towards art again. Do you think, do you think that was a very important part of your, of your recovery process? And, and is it still um, a part of your recovery process? It's not so much anymore, but at the time, my... Uh, that the idea of just drawing and wanting to um, reflect my experiences through creativity, there was a slow process. Originally, it was just a purely, a pretty mechanical thing. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, later it began to be more thematically. You know, I, I, I started to approach it in terms of the type of work that I was doing and, and, mm-hmm. and thinking about how that would be reflected, how that would reflect my. Uh, my experience so that seemed that process then eventually led to a, a, a quite a large exhibition at uh, robert gordon's in 2018 that was called the chance to swim exhibition can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that yeah the the exhibition uh, a chance to swim was um that was my first solo exhibition mm-hmm, uh, right. and it, it coincided um with um but the, my fifth transplant anniversary uh, if such a thing is uh, possible <laughs> so the exhibition a chance to swim coincided with the fifth anniversary of my transplant and i think the opening day was actually coincidentally wow. the the day of my 
the second of November, my transplant day. Wow, I must have felt like quite a moment, you know, in many, in many, in different, many different ways. I think, in reflection, it does seem that all of those coincidences and things happened. But at the time, when I was preparing for the work and doing the exhibition and so on, it 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 didn't really. Uh, it, it didn't seem that significant. It was just, that was just the way it worked out. Right, okay. It was the way it worked out. It, was, it seemed unnatural. So, but, but reflection was a nice, um, a nice coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looking at that exhibition, I was struck particularly in, in, in that with your take on the Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man and, uh, which, which comprised of, uh, uh, an MRI scan of your body and a lot of the artwork in that exhibition seems to, you know, seems to revolve around that theme. And I wondered if you could tell us something about the inspiration for that approach uh, and also uh, about, you know, your process uh, for the work that you produce for that exhibition. Yeah, the, um, uh, the, the piece, the artwork called Renaissance um, was was something which was inspired. I think in the early stages, I was I was already conscious of the idea of marking time um, and the routine of taking my medications every twelve hours and counting out all the numbers of the different pills and so on. Mm-hmm. And that that rhythm, um, you know, of life, if you like, um, plays a huge part in everyone's life who has had a transplant and. And I began to mark my post-transplant life around the around 2015 by collecting the medication packets that I needed to take of all the medications that I need to survive. And I worked out that in one year, I was consuming more than 7,600 items of medication. Um, in the space of a year, which I, during that same time, I figured out that my heart was beating around 47 million times. So it seems that, you know, every bit of medication was providing so many uh, heartbeats over a period of a year. Um, <laughs> and so that, and, and then, and then you break that right down to, you know, as I said, the 12 hour medications um, and the medications I would take would be, you know, normally between 10, uh, sorry, normally upwards of 20 items of medication every day split into two 12-hour shifts, if you like. Yeah. So it adds up. And so I was collecting all these medications and I was trying to work out a way of combining these ideas that would end up as a large-scale, eventually it would end up as this large-scale self-portrait uh, collage, uh, which they made in 2016, and that was called, I called it Renaissance. Um, around that time, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to Dr. Sylvia Cassini from the University's Film and Visual Culture. Right. And um, and she, at the time, she was researching the use of MRI imagery in contemporary visual art, and she was very supportive and facilitated me to be able to have a series of full-body MRI scans done at the university's uh, biomedical imaging unit. So that was a real... Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, you kind of, well, I had stupidly kind of assumed they were images taken during your during your sort of recovery or before before and after sort of thing. But no, the, not the, at all. <laughs> yeah, the, the images that, I, the clinical images that I get are purely cardiothoracic. They don't yeah, have my arms do, and legs yeah. and head and all that stuff. Yeah. So, 
so yeah, so I got all these scans done, and obviously they have to be done in bits because you know, although it's a full body scanner, you can only scan like slices if you like. So mm-hmm. I ended up with thousands of these images, um, both 2D and 3D, because you've got the 2D images like from my feet, legs, all the way through up to my head, out to the arms and fingers and so on. But each of those images comes with a stack of of 3D images. So maybe for the so for the chest, for example, which is the deepest part, um, you've got maybe 20 slices of depth. Do you know what I mean? So you've got hundreds of these images. So I was so I used so I stitched all those images together using Photoshop to create this whole body image, right, which, which which echoes that. Da Vinci's iconic Vitruvian yeah. man with yeah. a double set of arms and legs outstretched within that circle. Um, and I, uh, so, and then I, I got that image printed life size on this kind of canvas material um, and incorporated the thousands of medication packets around that figure. Um, and and they, they right. gave all this incredible yeah. uh textured gold and silver shining foil Mm -hmm. and you know so i wanted to create that circle symbolizing that you know preciousness that circle of life yeah and the the medication required to keep it yeah to keep keep the life going yeah yeah, uh so that was basically all that medication you see on that image is the medication that i threw down my neck in the previous (laughs) year prior to producing that piece uh, and the whole thing was life size, so the, yeah. with that, and it, it, and it was built within a square of panels, and it's about nearly two and a half meters by two and a half meters. It's a very powerful image. So where is that now? Yeah. Do you, do you, do you... Uh, it's in bits in my garage. <laughs> but it was first exhibited in the in a small curated exhibition, actually in the McRobert building at the university. Oh, okay. In two thousand and sixteen, just just after I made it, it was later centerpiece of the, the exhibition that uh, just spoke about it Robert Gordon um, mm-hmm. yeah so that's uh, um, uh, yeah so it's uh, it's not currently in any no but the, pro- the process is fascinating that just that process of taking all those different yeah, sliced, and, and the sliced the sliced images and uh, creating a picture yeah. of life and the, its fragility and, and what's required to keep, to keep it going I think it's really yeah. clever uh-huh. And for me, the, the the documentation and the explanation about how the work is created is almost as important as the finished piece. Yeah, it's all the it's, that's, that's the context, isn't it? That... Yeah, um, because that's what you know. It's uh, a finished artwork is purely an aesthetic object, but mm-hmm. it's it's the um, it's the story behind it. It's the it's the um, it's the, the, the you know that narrative of how it came about mm-hmm. is is really interesting for me, and it and I actually documented the whole process uh, on on page of my my website, so you can see me getting into the scanner, mm-hmm. you can see me using the Photoshop and all that stuff. Um, so it's I like to kind of explain those things and talk about my practice in those terms because um, you know I, I don't like to I like to kind of demystify the process of mm-hmm. making art. It's not. It's not a magic it's trick. Not, yeah, it's not a trickery. It's not. Um, it's uh, the, yeah. There is a lot of thinking, a lot of conceptual work involved, but you know when it comes down to it, you have to just you have to make stuff. Yeah, 
um, and you have to translate your ideas into, and you have to have the the resources and the skills to 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 put those into something which mm-hmm. and the vision does justice the to the idea, the vision of those ideas to, to, does justice to to the idea, mm-hmm. and so that's really what I was trying to do. So obviously you've you've, you've gone through this massive um, traumatic experience, which you processed partly with your art uh, leading to that exhibition and was it around about that time with the with the use of the mri scans and you say looking beneath the surface and thinking about the heart in reality versus its representation in culture is that when the academic interest started to come in at that point um, when did your academic you know you've gone from a practicing artist into an artist and academic and when did that academic transition or addition come into play so the academic interest in um my you're looking at representations of heart transplantation came probably after my um you know a few years of 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 my art practice Mm -hmm. and as i started to realize it was a lot of misinformation and cultural stereotypes around heart transplantation but there was a lot of academic research um about the experiences of heart transplant recipients Mm -hmm. i didn't actually feel that my experiences were reflected in a lot of those you know, all that ac- academic literature or cultural portrayals. Um, and in in the the field of research-based visual art, it seemed the focus is, was quite often on the concept of having a transplanted organ rather than the experience or the, the real-world challenges faced by mm-hmm. um, transplant recipients. Transplant recipients have always been ill for you know often extended periods of time before the transplant you know they they can face things like uh financial hardship mm. loss of employment you know losing homes and strange relationships and even physical disabilities and so on and a lot of those issues seem are often unreported or, yeah. or you know not very widely reported um and uh, they, they tend not to be areas which are of interest um, and to those that seek to sensationalize the experience or the subject of, of transplantation, you know? So, I mean, to give you an example, the, the, there's, there's a lot of texts, uh, for example, about uh, ideas of transplant recipients suffering loss of um, bodily integrity um as a result of transplantation and organ donation um when you when you say integrity what what do you mean by that well the well the 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 concept of 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 incorporating a so-called foreign organ Mm -hmm. and having your your original organ so removed not not being the complete original person now sort of thing yeah yeah um but uh but that, so there's a lot of there's a lot of research around those themes, but but I, I, in my case, you know, the heart that I had for fifty years um, simply went in the bin on the second of November two thousand thirteen, okay. and I've got no emotional or physiological or psychological attachment to that. Mm-hmm. And um, and anecdotally, I've never heard any other heart transplant recipients, you know, discussing you know, those those issues in, in, in anything other than practical terms. So 
so it's the, that kind of disconnection between my own experiences and the the the, the cultural and um, artistic representations, mm-hmm. um, and often the the kind of research around those those um, those ideas uh, and interactions, and that, and that that really sparked my interest and ultimately led to the, the PhD, right. starting the PhD. And are there any uh, specific? Exact examples of that misrepresentation in culture that you're, you're drawing from or uh, citing in your in your thesis is there, are there any specific novels or films or um, photography or or any visual art that you're you're drawing from as an example of that misrepresentation? Yeah, I mean, I can give you plenty of examples from the world of film, mm-hmm. which uh, which is obviously a hugely influential cultural medium as well as um, examples of contemporary and recent visual art and, and you know, the research around that. And film portrayals are interesting because they, um, they, they, they either portray transplantation, art transplantation in particular, in horror and science fiction genre. And, uh, and, and these films are not, they're not obscure exploitation movies, that they're mm. very much part of the contemporary mainstream. I mean, I can give you some examples of plot outlines from some some movies and so on. Um, uh, so I've got some here. Um, the Marked Heart, which is a Netflix production from 2022, so brand new. All right. Uh, plot line. Simone's, Simone's wife was killed to extract her heart and transplanted it to... Camellia, the wife of a man, uh, the wife of a rich man, in search of revenge, he dives into the dangerous world of organ trafficking. Okay. Right. Another Netflix production uh, from 2019, Chambers, has a plot description. After receiving a heart transplant, a teenager begins unraveling the horrifying circumstances <laughs> and conspiracy that led to the donor's mysterious death. Oh, I see. So as if there's some sort of so, trace of the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, that show was widely criticised for exploiting organ donation. Mm. And uh, Tenaya Wallace, who's the director of Donate Life Hollywood, which is an uh, organ donation um, charity, I think, in, in, in Los Angeles, she accused Hollywood writers and producers of perpetuating damaging myths about organ donation. Um, and uh, the, another example, give you, I can give you loads. So the British film Last Christmas, which was only in 2019. Oh, yes. Uh, and only was re- only released uh, in the last, I think, year or two. We all know the, the following COVID. line, don't we? Last Christmas. Um, yeah, it was basically a movie uh, based on the George Michael song. Mm-hmm. or Wham. Um, But it was written by and starred the renowned British actor Emma Thompson. And it's a romantic comedy about a young woman who has a heart transplant, who's had a heart transplant a year previously. Um, she takes Her life takes a new turn and she meets and falls in love with a mysterious, attractive young man. And it transpires, of course, that the young man is apparently the ghost of her organ donor who had <laughs> died uh, right. in the previous year in a road accident. You know, so... Um, uh, I mean, there's uh, there's loads of examples. I can give you a few more. Awake, 2007, 
a wealthy young man undergoing a heart transplant uh, surgery discovers that the surgical team are intent to murder him. Um, so have so, you have you experienced any, any of these sorts of um, misconceptions and, and sort of slight, you know, ne- negative attitudes towards yourself uh, since you've had a heart transplant, just chatting to people? Or, or is it something you've just become more aware of through sort of reflecting on your experience and looking into the way things are represented in popular culture like this? Well, I, I've, I've had people ask questions um, which are clearly influenced by you know, those kind of cultural representations and narratives around transplantation. Um, and they, they kind of demonstrate a level of misunderstanding or even just ignorance of, of, of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I've given talks to, in the past, to students um, or in general audiences. And people ask questions like, um, do you know anything about your donor? Or has your personality changed? Mm. <laughs> and you know th- those questions are actually very strange because the people who ask them, they don't really appear to be mindful that their morbid curiosity may not actually be particularly welcome. Mm. Because even engaging in answering such questions, you know those kind of questions, you know I feel that I'm being pushed into a corner of perpetuating. Yeah, other people's preconceptions. Yeah, you know, um, and I've also had conversations with people who say um, they wouldn't allow their organs to be donated because they're terrified of the idea of their heart being removed after their death. And I usually reply to them by yeah. telling them about, how do they reckon I felt having my heart removed while I was still alive? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and you know that's um, it, it. Kind of points out that. You know, if people stop to think, they perhaps would realise the that they're living in a different mm. reality from, you know, the, the the what a lot of people who are involved in transplantation and donation is is you know it's completely different. You know, they don't they don't really understand the. the it's a really it's like important in real life. thing. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's completely missed. I think it's a bit like uh, perhaps what you know attitudes towards neurodiversity used to be, or something like that. You know, it's um, and do you, I, I guess do you find these representations that you've mentioned, all those film plots that you went through there? Do do you find them in, as a you know someone who survived that trauma and as a heart transplant recipient? Do you find them offensive? I think I do find a lot of the uh, misrepresenting, uh, misrepresentation and portrayals of heart transplantation to be um, uncomfortable and Mm. possibly offensive because the the way that that transplantation is widely associated with negative associations with like horror, violence, murder, supernatural. Yeah. Um, and I don't see why a serious medical condition, which is experienced by so many people, um, and is a, 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 a an accepted part of um, modern medicine, I don't see why that should be fair game for such exploitation. Um, I mean, it, it wouldn't be tolerated if it was applied to other marginalised or vulnerable groups or people with medical conditions or disabilities. Yeah, deaf or blind um, people, they wouldn't, that wouldn't be yeah. subject to the same sorts of things, would it? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we wouldn't be 
we wouldn't countenance, for example, uh, um, publicly funded art exhibitions which explore the experience of disability where no disabled artists were included. Nor would we mm. accept representations of disability in film, for example, where you know where where that kind of corporeal difference um, had those outdated connotations with evil and superstition and so on, which mm. we may have seen uh, previously in the past. Um, and you know, substitute disability for heart transplantation, and then you get the you start to realise how how damaging those mm-hmm. um, superstitious and, and um, completely bonkers representations <laughs> are. It's a, it's and a, it, it, it is infuriating sometimes. I can imagine. I mean, it's a, it seems so obvious and yet it has, I think, been completely missed. And I wondered if, you know, is that one of the driving forces behind your own research and your thesis is to correct, to, to correct that... Um, those uh, mis- you know those misconceptions yeah it's, it's it's for me it's really important to to use the the research that i'm doing in 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 terms of my uh, my artwork and the, the you know the, the the research i'm doing the phd to make those points and to push back mm-hmm. against negative attitudes and mis- misrepresentations of heart transplantation mm-hmm. um I mean, what I've, sorry, what I've really noticed is that there's this relentless approach in what, what, what I would describe as us representing them, those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lack of opportunity for experiential voices to be heard and to offer counter-narratives which, you know, which recognise the reality of heart transplantation and those that live with it. Um you know, a, a counter narrative to the accepted fantastical plot lines and so on that you know that I alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. And you find, in a way, to um, I mean, beyond the thesis, obviously, which will be an academic treatise on the subject, you find, in a way, to uh, communicate that then through through your art. What, what art are you working on at the moment, and and how you find in a way to uh, connect with people around these sorts of issues. It's an ongoing, uh, it's an ongoing thing. The, uh, I mean, the, the practice-based part of my, um, you know, my PhD mm-hmm. really is, is, is looks into that. So, for example, I'm working on um, uh, a, 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 f- a film which documents my um, my experience of of living through the the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. and I started, you know. Uh, um, filming aspects of my life and my my wife will be you know basically shielding together, and so that's it, it's it's not it's a very kind of intimate film in the sense that that it's it's not it doesn't look at those big issues but it it, it looks at just dealing with day to day a day to day almost the mundane um, and the, the 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 real life of living as a transplant recipient like for many other people during COVID uh, has become much more acute than, than it had been previously. Mm-hmm. People like transplant recipients have always had to be careful about um, infection risk 
and maintaining social, social, you know, physical distance from people and avoiding risky situations. Um, so, for example, I, I since I had my transplant, I think I've been in public transport maybe you know a handful of times mm-hmm. since COVID. I've never been in public transport um, uh, since COVID started. Um, I've never been to any indoor social gathering, pub, restaurant, mm-hmm. theatre, that kind of thing. Nothing. Um, and so, so the, those are the those are the. It's a massive the, impact the, on someone's life, isn't it? I mean, it's... yeah. And so that's that's really where the focus of my work, in terms of the PhD, has been okay. in, in that practice practice based sense. Um, but I've been working during that time. Uh, I've been making some uh, other moving image work in collaboration with my wife, who's also an artist. Mm-hmm. And those works focus on broader themes of, um, you know, the, the life and just the fragility of life and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's that's a that's an important area of of work uh, and working from home being uh, detached from the the outside world if you like mm-hmm. uh, provides an opportunity to 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 work in that way to to, to focus on those those um, those those issues of dealing with strange and uh, uh, uncertain situations uh, and there's a lot of parallels between the um, uh, the early days of recovering from uh, illness and transplantation mm-hmm. to coping with the uh, the early days, especially of of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I can't Im- imagine how you know what an anxious time that must have been. Uh, it must have been you know terrifying at the beginning. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, well, it was terrifying and. Uh, I mean, you can only put up with so much terror before <laughs> it becomes normalised. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't make it any less risky. Um, and so, he, paradoxically, for a lot of people who are most at risk, the safest time we had was during the original lockdowns mm. because everyone was being right. as cautious as we have to be all the yeah. time. Which which um, produced the risk for you, of course. <laughs> so as as... All the restrictions, so-called restrictions, I prefer to call them uh, precautions, as they were done away with, the risks increased for those who are most at risk because, um, you know, during lockdown, it was felt fairly safe to go into a supermarket because everyone was wearing wearing face coverings and there were relatively few people in the shops back then. Mm -hmm. Now the shops are packed. And uh, nobody's wearing mm. face masks or making any attempt to uh, respect um, the uh, potential risk of, of their fellow people. No, you're right. It's just yeah. gone. Yeah, straight back. So when when will your PhD finish or do, when do you hope to finish the PhD? Um, I hope to finish it uh, next summer. Yeah. That's the... That's the so I did... But me too. Um, that's the, when I'm yeah, to the... I'd originally my plan would have to have been finished finished at this autumn or this summer, but um, just with the whole COVID mm. thing and so many 
just so much anxiety and so much upheaval. Uh, it just became it became delayed, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, my focus. I, I lost focus for I think for quite a while, and it was difficult to keep that level of intensity up mm-hmm. when so many distractions were there. And it's, it's, it seems strange to talk about distractions when you know I've been stuck at home. You would think <laughs> if you're stuck at home, that would be the ideal opportunity to focus on something like that. But doesn't it, always work that way, it, does it? It doesn't really work yeah. like that. It was you know even though there's a lot of distractions uh, which are, are, are which get in the way of of just being able to focus um uh as well and you know and other you know had other um medical uh issues and things that you know that have been coming and going over the over the period as well which mm-hmm. um which which you know which uh, pushed pushed the focus back a bit you know mm-hmm. <clears throat> so beyond the end of the phd then and and your shift towards <clears throat> film uh in in your visual art and the work you do with your wife is it is that going to continue you think that's where your focus is going to be as you move beyond that phd i hope so yeah that's the intention um but i don't have any specific plans right. um i mean the nine years since since i had my illness and transplant and particularly the last three years well nearly three years now it, for me it's just important to focus on the present and mm-hmm. surviving the present and mm-hmm. getting getting through the next um, the next stage of uh, whatever it is I'm doing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I want to keep doing creative work. Um, the challenge as an artist is always balancing what you want to do with what opportunities there are in terms of commissions or, or other support. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest challenge, of course, for any independent artist is simply getting any interest in and the work you do, um, especially if you don't have any institutional yeah. framework in which to work. Um, and most of the, uh, a lot of the big um, art projects, commissions, uh, research projects that involve visual art, a lot of the people who get those gigs are people who are artists who are also academics and right. they they have that academic anchor mm-hmm. within which to work either uh be it a you know the financial security of having a proper job <laughs> or or just having a, an infrastructure where funding and so on yeah. is is more um more formalized and maybe slightly easier to to um uh, to access than is that um, does that come into your thinking for doing a phd or is it just that's just an ancillary point or, or... Um, Do you feel like you might benefit from that academic recognition? I haven't really thought about it in those terms, but uh, I would like to think that um, having, you know, having the... Uh, it's, it's probably not so much the opportunity that it affords, but rather the... Um, the for me, it gives me a focus mm-hmm. and, and gives me some kind of... Um, uh, validity to to what I was kind of doing yeah, anyway. in my own research. You know, I was doing a lot of research on my own as an artist to to try and um, um, uh, rationalise and understand how my work fitted into a wider yeah. cultural 
um, uh, narrative. You know, working in within the PhD university structure has given me some much more focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, once once I started to um, you know with the PhD, then it became clear to me that yeah, there are uh, it's it's a much more um, structured yeah. approach. And so the opportunity to create so a way um, of thinking, I suppose. Isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and so to be able even to create work, visual artwork, but in film, um, I also had to think about you know that in a much more structured way and think about how my film work fits into sort of film uh, and and you know documentary genres and and so on and 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 so that that's that. So there's a lot of Give me an opportunity to do a lot of self-reflection, yeah. Um, in, in terms of, you know, thinking more about the way I was approaching my work, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it seemed that there was more, um, you know, I had that responsibility to potentially to other people rather than just myself. That's right. Well, thanks for coming and and, and sharing what's been obviously it's too, too difficult to experience to describe almost, isn't it? And uh, you know the the work you're doing's obviously important work, and uh, it's great that you can come on and and talk about it with us. And best of luck for uh, finishing the PhD and continuing with your art and uh, continuing um, living a happy, healthy life uh, beyond beyond that, Brian. Yeah, well, uh, thanks very much, Ian. I've really enjoyed it. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.